the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today, the whistleblower's identity is revealed, Democrats and Republicans battle for control of a tweetable narrative, California yet again reveals that its pro-worker, pro-family policies are anything but, and I have a hot take on the rewriting of Baby It's Cold Outside. In the episode 32 highlights, we ask an existential question and whether social knowledge or Bible knowledge converts Christians to progressive views. I'm Georgie Borman, a journalist, author, and commentator with West Coast Roots. This is a 180 cast breakdown session where I take a critical look at the big ideas that shape our world and how people are changing their minds. Welcome to the 180 cast. Hello, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast dedicated to exploring how people change their minds. And you've tuned in to another breakdown session where I talk about news and the big ideas that drive them and break down and analyze some of the takeaways from our 180 cast in-depth interviews, which are exclusively with people who have radically changed their minds on a subject, as well as respond to messages from the flip phone, because I love hearing from you and debunk a little bit of conventional wisdom and or popular talking points when they run up against the facts. So, as I have said in my teaser, we've got a lot to cover today. But before we get started, hey, don't forget that you can follow the 180 cast on Twitter and Instagram, where I post immediately as soon as the episode, um, as soon as new episodes are posted every Friday morning. And of course, you can tag me and talk to me on Twitter at 180cast. I would love to chat with you about anything that has to do with this podcast. Now, let's move on to some top stories. I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I don't know what we're yelling about! It will top the list. Big news coming out of Real Clear Investigations. This is my top story for today. The whistleblower's identity is unofficially revealed, but revealed. Federal documents, according to Real Clear Investigations, reveal that uh, 33-year-old Eric Charamella is um, the whistleblower, so-called whistleblower, or complainer, as other people like to say. He's a registered Democrat held over from the Obama White House, and uh, previously worked with former Vice President Joe Biden and former CIA Director John Brennan, who, of course, is a vocal critic of Trump who helped initiate the Russia collusion investigation of the Trump campaign during the 2016 election. So there is a informal 40-page dossier circulating, uh, circulating on the Hill right now about Eric Charamella. And uh, he is identified in that dossier as a leaker from the White House. This White House has had a ton of leaks, maybe more than any in modern history. It's a very, very leaky White House, and 
he was part of this. He leaked a meeting between Trump and Russian diplomats um, the day after firing Comey uh, by sending an email outside of his chain of command to alert another agency about that meeting. And then he also argued at the time, of course, that uh, Putin told Trump to fire Comey. Also important in this dossier is the fact that Charamilla worked with a Democrat National Committee operative named Alexa Chalupa, who dug up dirt on the Trump campaign during the 2016 election. He invited her to the White House for meetings, according to Real Clear Investigations. And um, she, uh, Charamilla, Alexa Charamilla, was a Ukrainian-American who supported Hillary Clinton and led an effort to link the Republican campaign to the Russian government. So he knows her. He had her in the White House, according to a former co-worker who spoke to Real Clear Investigations. Charamella was detailed to the National Security Council in the summer of 2015, and he worked closely with mm-hmm, former Vice President Joe Biden. He was Obama's point man for Ukraine, and he was assigned there by then-CIA Director John Brennan, who is at the the center of the new uh, probe into the Mueller investigation and who instigated the uh, investigation into so-called Russia collusion with the Trump campaign. So Democrats and Republicans and everybody involved in the situation in the impeachment inquiries knows who this CIA analyst is. They've known for a long time, but Democrats are arguing that it's not necessary for him to testify in Congress since we already have people who are closer to the issue, right, like Bill Taylor, um, people who listen to the phone call, people who met with Trump on these issues. We already have them testifying, so why do we need this guy who had secondhand information to come and testify? So... Uh, Democrats have actually shut down lines of inquiry from Republicans during these hearings because they argue that it may lead to the revealing of this quote-unquote whistleblower's identity. Okay, here's the thing. If this guy has strong biases, which it obviously looks like he does, he was an Obama guy, he was a, a Clinton guy, then the public needs to know that and he needs to be brought into the light and be able to share to Congress exactly why he wrote this report, exactly what his his ties are. He needs to be questioned on what his ties to the DNC are and what his ties to Hillary Clinton are. All of these things need to be revealed in public hearings and put in front of the public so that we know whether this information that is, of course, secondhand is colored by his biases, which it obviously seems like it does. And if you look at the whistleblower report, there's obviously a narrative that he has tried to push throughout his complaints. It's not just him listing a bunch of things that he saw wrong. He's constructing a narrative and then he backs it up with footnotes, which a lot of it is just open source stuff that you can find on the internet. 
But the bottom line is that all of this needs to be brought into the public, picked apart in these hearings by both Democrats and Republicans, and he needs to be grilled on his associations and his biases so that we can properly assess how to weigh his complaint. Because it builds into other, it builds upon other evidence that this is base this this is basically an effort to trump up charges against Trump so that we can have this impeachment inquiry so that Trump's presidency can be tainted and further quote unquote delegitimized and uh, i mentioned building on other evidence we have more evidence coming out that um the the people who are voicing their concerns about the president's phone call, about the withholding of aid to Ukraine, uh, about the the so-called uh, with, withholding of a meeting with uh, the pre- new president of Ukraine, uh, that, that some of these people have ties that we heretofore did not understand. And journalists are bringing this to light as they are supposed to do. So I have an article from Breitbart, which I usually don't quote from because I feel like they really botched the Roy Moore story a couple years ago. But this seems like good reporting. So Bill Taylor, who testified this past week, uh, the, the, the interim ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, he has ties to Burisma and Hunter Biden. So... He testified last week about the text messages, right, regarding Giuliani and uh, Ambassador to the EU uh, Sondland running a sort of parallel, unofficial foreign policy line with Ukraine. So he testified about the text messages, which were already known about, but, you know, he builds on it and says, yes, you know, this is what I thought, et cetera, et cetera. So um, Taylor, who, who told uh, impeachment investigators that Trump was withholding military aid unless Zelensky went public with a promise to investigate Trump's political rival Biden and Biden's son Hunter. His testimony was contradicted uh, contradicted Trump's repeated denials that there was any quid pro quo. That's according to the AP, but. So there's some background here from Breitbart. Uh, A mere two months ago, he led an observer delegation for the National Democratic Institute in Ukraine, um, upon the board of which sat Hunter Biden. The DNI has ties to the Atlantic Council, according to this Breitbart article, which is funded and works in partnership with Burisma, as well as Um, the United States Department of State. So that should be made clear as well. But in addition to the direct relationship with the Atlantic Council, Taylor, for the last nine years, has also served as a a senior advisor to the U.S.-Ukraine Business Council. And and he has participated in in events uh, co-hosted jointly with um, the Atlantic Council and uh, Burisma. Uh, These... These uh, U.S. UBC events have been financially sponsored by Burisma, which uh, Hunter Biden sat on the board, of course, and was being paid 
um, something like 50 grand a month to sit on that board, presumably for access to the White House via Vice President Joe Biden. Meanwhile, Thursday testimony from ex-Trump advisor Tim Morrison confirmed that the the substance of Taylor's testimony, of course, was accurate and that he saw nothing illegal in the call, which everybody who's paying attention should know that there's nothing obviously illegal with with Trump's um, call with new President Zelensky. But he was asked about this, quote unquote, sinking feeling that he had, um, which he said was due to a conversation between EU ambassador Gordon Sondland and Trump, where Trump insisted that he wanted Zelensky to, quote, go to a microphone and say he is opening investigations of Biden and 2016 election interference, which is very concerning in itself, regardless of what we are learning of the background and the ties of the people who have been testifying on this subject, right? So we've got to look at the background and we've got to weigh the biases, but we have also got to look at the substance and of course weigh whether or not we believe um, these people are telling the truth, which I think they're testifying under oath, right? So they should be telling the truth. And that is concerning that it seems like Trump didn't even necessarily want an investigation into the corruption. He pretty much just wanted Zelensky to say he was opening investigations of Biden and 2016 election interference so that that could help his campaign and boost his image as president and sort of tamp down this narrative that has gone on from the very beginning that Trump is a quote-unquote illegitimate president and um, that, you know, he was colluding with the Russians and all of that. So that kind of puts a damper on the this uh, talking point that, well, Trump just wanted investigations into Hunter Biden and Burisma because he's concerned about corruption in Ukraine and he really wants to clean that up. And he, he just withheld the 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 military aid because, you know, they really need to clean up their act be- before we give them money. That kind of mm, kind of rubs against that. So we've got to take that into account. Of course, of course, the public deserves to know what's going on and any connections or suspect dealings of these unelected officials and advisors. But the fact that it hasn't been transparent and that they have deep biases against Trump doesn't make it what many on the right are calling a coup. I have a problem with this word, and this is sort of the big idea that I want to get to as we wrap up our new segment. That doesn't make it a a coup. So there's been a lot of talk that this is a quote-unquote coup to quote-unquote overthrow a quote-unquote duly elected president. That's that's the general line that people on the right are going with, that Trump supporters are going with. And they point to the obvious bias of the players involved here, as I just illustrated, the, the ones from the surveillance-capable agencies, of course, especially as evidence of this, because that is very concerning when people who are capable of um, instigating investigations and surveilling you have political biases that they are actually acting upon in their jobs when they are supposed to be nonpartisan and unbiased. 
But then on the left, of course, you've got this narrative of utter corruption, utter corruption. Trump is total garbage all the way through, and he's using the government purely for personal gain. And it's, we don't know exactly what crime it is, but it's some type of crime that, uh, that Trump asked Ukraine to investigate Hunter Biden and this crazy conspiracy theory about the other missing DNC server, which I don't know, is maybe like buried under Kiev or something. Of course, the lines are not always clear between election politics and policy. And I think that's what's tripping up a lot of people and trying to understand this and what makes it all the more tempting to sort of cling to one narrative or another. So you just like decide Trump is total garbage or Trump didn't do anything wrong. It's a coup or it's, you know, removing somebody who is utterly corrupt from office. So again, talking about narratives, we have it's a coup versus these are impeachable offenses, and this is total out-of-control corruption. And the whole thing is really complicated and messy, and not as all, not at all, I don't think, as well orchestrated, as well conspired as people on the outside make it seem. And I disagree with some of my colleagues, even at The Federalist on that, like Margot Cleveland is, is, is of the opinion that a lot of this was orchestrated behind the scenes by the deep state to overthrow the sitting president. Um, I don't think bureaucrats are generally competent enough to do something like that. And this is not Hollywood. This is Washington, D.C. And they're two totally different things. She, she can make a really good case for that. I have to admit, she does make a pretty good case but looking at human nature and looking at how dumb people are, sorry, but it's true. I, I, don't, I don't see it. Okay, narrative. Coup, impeachable offenses. The media is always searching for a narrative, for a frame in which to cram all this ugly stuff. And that's how we've gotten this one side versus the other side. Coup utter corruption, coup, utter corruption. For Fox News, it's coup. For New York Times, MSNBC, CNN, it's utter scandal. And Schiff and Pelosi are just trying to do their patriotic duty to resist this illegitimate president. I mean, if you think about everything I just said about the people who testified and all of the names and all of the meetings and all of the phone calls and all of the texts and the dossiers, and the documents and all of that, are you going to remember any of that? Are you just going to, to file that away and construct this beautiful, intricate picture of what's going on here? No, because our brains are always searching for a narrative to cling on to because that's what we respond to. We respond to stories. So it's important to remember in the midst of all of this complicated super detailed mess in all of the minutia that we're buried in that we are being fed a narrative and that we want to accept that narrative and it is very difficult to resist that 
But here's why it's important. Both narratives are propped up by the idea that, according to each side, they're representing the quote-unquote will of the people, right? You see all these, these buzzwords that I'm bringing up? These are things that we need to pay attention to and sort of peel back the layers and ask, is that really true or is that something that people are just saying to make their side appear more legitimate? So will of the people, right? On one side, you've got people who say, well, Clinton won the popular vote. So Trump isn't a legitimate president because he won by the electoral college. And you've got people on the right saying, of course, Trump is a legitimate president, which he is because he won by our uh, system of elections, which is the electoral college. Trump won the electoral college, won the electoral college. He won the presidency. The polls, of course, are pretty split on impeachment, and that's a popular talking point that you can just sort of slap around in front of people who raise any questions like, "Mm, is this really the will of the people? But, you know, it's the will of the people. And that's the that's it's like an open and shut case for so many talking heads on TV. I think that that's dangerous. Because you're asserting that your political opponents are going against the American public and actively, actively opposing what they want instead of trying to implement policies that are meant to benefit the public. So this stirs up a lot of animosity and really ratchets up the tension because everybody's claiming that the people are on their side and we're sort of being jerked around by the reins this way and that. But I'm just saying, I think we need to resist the simplifications, resist fully adopting one narrative or another until we've kind of done our homework. And I'm not saying that you have to be able to write a 10 page report on everything that's happening, but until we've sort of figured out what's going on for ourselves instead of just going off of the headlines. So this is my slow down moment for you today. Big picture stuff, because as I have said on this podcast, it is important to talk about the big picture. Both sides go wrong when they insist their position represents the will of the people. Already established that. The people decided in 2016 to elect Trump and he won the Electoral College. He is a legitimate president, okay? So I think that we can scrap that idea because he he won fair and square. Unless you can prove that there was vote tampering by the Russians, which there wasn't, then he won fair and square. Whether his approval rating right now is at 1% or 99%. That is what we need to focus on. Is Trump a duly elected president who was elected for four years, and we all knew this going in, that he was going to be our president for at least four years? Or is his legitimacy based off of what his polling data says at any given point in time? Which do you think is a good way to run the republic? Do you see what's happening here? When people adopt this idea that populism is king 
then anything can be legitimized or delegitimized based off of what the public thinks it wants at that given time. And remember, polls are just polls, okay? We're not interviewing every single voting age American on what they think of this stuff. The vast majority of people don't know, don't care. That matters. Is he legal? Did he commit any crimes? Is he the duly elected president? Those are the things we need to focus on. What's legal? What's not? That's how we determine what is legitimate or not. And speaking of, speaking of what's legitimate, the impeachment process, this is, this might get under the skin of, this might get under your skin a little bit, but the impeachment inquiry, these proceedings are a political process. They are a political process and they are also completely constitutional and that makes them legitimate. It doesn't matter what your personal feelings about the impeachment are, whether you think they're trumped up charges or not, whether you think there's a deep deep state conspiracy or not, that doesn't matter. What we need to look at when we're talking about the language that we're going to use, like coup, for instance, you need to look at whether it's constitutional or whether it isn't, whether they're following the rules, whether they aren't whether they have the ability to make the rules, which they do because the Constitution is fairly vague on how all of this works, or not. The impeachment proceeding is legitimate. The president, the sitting president, is also legitimate. Both of those things can be true at the same time. Despite what um, Stephanie Grisham, the White House press secretary, said earlier that this was a quote-unquote unhinged obsession with this illegitimate uh, impeachment proceeding from the Democrats. They're just obsessed, and it's illegitimate. That's not true. We need to be careful with our language here because the language that we use can really damage the way that we relate to each other. I mean, 2016 did such a number on us. People lost friends. People stopped talking to their own family members because this, that election was so hostile and so controversial. That's why this matters. You can't just be lazy with your language and throw around words like coup and illegitimate because you're just ratcheting up the tension And it's not necessary. And it doesn't help us understand anything. Okay, so the impeachment proceeding is legitimate. Continuing with the big picture stuff. It is highly contentious, of course. I'm not saying it's not. It's it's almost like people think that in order for something to be legitimate, it has to be very orderly and it has to be by a book that was written long ago and you follow it line by line and nobody has any really strong outrageous opinions on it and you know that's what's legitimate or something like that or there has to be some really really obvious egregious crime for something like this to continue for an impeachment inquiry in order for it to be legitimate that's just not that's just not true okay 
So you can say they're trumped up charges. You can point out how many times Shifty Schiff has lied. But frankly, I think it is irresponsible to brand it as a coup unless you are absolutely clear you are using it in a strictly political sense and not the overthrow the constitutional order sense. And that is rarely made clear, frankly, because people, everything's got to be tweetable, right? We, we can't have any context, context, can't have any nuance. So that is rarely made clear. And it is, even, even if you try your best to make it clear that that's how you're using the term, it's really easy for your opponents to mischaracterize it. You can pull a quote, you can pull an entire paragraph and not, and not have any explanation that, oh, by the way, I'm talking about coup in a purely political sense. You know, like when people say they're targeting one demographic or targeting another, or they, they put a bullseye on it or something like that. Like, you know, you're referring to it in that sense. That's rarely made clear. So it's easy for your opponents to mischaracterize it. And again, ratchet up the tension, ratchet up the animosity, and turn everything into emotionally charged chaos. So I think what we are seeing here is how dangerous it is when both sides insist that the other side is subverting our system of government. Like Pelosi said on Thursday, right? She said, what is, it, what is at stake here in all this is nothing less than our democracy. Our democracy is at stake. That's what Pelosi says. Is that true? Or are we going to have a 2020 election in which we decide whether we want Trump to continue to be president or whether we want somebody else, whether we want Warren or Sanders or Biden? Do you really think that our democracy is at stake here? Is this a situation in which our republic is going to crumble? People are just going to throw out the Constitution and it's just going to be A free-for-all is just going to be chaos. It's going to be like a banana republic. Is that really what's going on here? No. No. But neither side is dealing with this with measured, wise, appropriate, accurate language. And that makes a big difference. To call it a coup is an escalation of tension that is totally unnecessary. To say that the democracy is being subverted, that the the president is being overthrown, is totally unnecessary. I'm open to being convinced otherwise about this, but that is my take on the impeachment inquiry. I hope that was helpful. And for the record, I think I think Democrats know that they're not going to get Trump removed, like barring some huge bombshell that we don't know about. And this is really an attempt to taint Trump, as I alluded to earlier, and his supporters, that they are corrupt, that they're kind of nasty, and we may not be able to pin this on them, but you know and I know that they're dirty. Like, that's that's what's going on here. That's the idea. Because... Like, if you think about coup, I just think this is so funny. Why would you call this a coup? If it, if it is a coup, it's like the least effective coup ever. Because what happens if you remove Trump from office? Mike Pence becomes president. Okay? So can we just, can we just stop? 
This is ridiculous. If it's a coup and they're trying to remove the remove the president, the vice president becomes president. Do you think you're going to be able to overthrow Mike Pence because you have some really nasty dirt on Mike Pence who doesn't meet with women alone? Like, it's Mike Pence, guys. Seriously? <laughs> Unbelievable. So at the end of the day, this is purely politics. It's highlighted. Everything is out in the open and in the headlines. All of the contours are accentuated. It's bitter. It's nasty. But it's politics. Okay? Just rest easy. I don't think our whole democracy is at stake here. I would love to move on now to interview highlights from episode 32, in which we discuss some more big ideas. Episode 32 was my interview with Dr. David P. Gushy, who wrote a book called Changing Our Minds on the subject of the Christian sexual ethic and how he changed his mind from believing that marriage is between one man and one woman and that sex is for that covenantal relationship between one man and one woman in marriage. And now um, he, he believes that we shouldn't restrict that covenant heterosexual couples. And I have pulled some some of my favorite sound bites from that episode, which listening back to it, there's just so much there that we could talk about for a really long time. But I've just pulled a few sound bites and I have two takeaways for you to consider on this topic, which is very contentious, very painful for many people, but very, very important especially, of course, if you are a Christian. So Dr. Gushy, in my interview with him, outlined that his mind did not begin to change until he actually met people in person, face-to-face, in more intimate settings, who were members of the LGBT community. You know, he's, he mentioned a lesbian couple that came to his Bible study that had uh, adopted a child, and he met these people, whereas before in seminary, he didn't meet anybody. So here's uh, what he had to say about the personal relationship aspect of him changing his mind. I don't know that my mind would have changed if I had stayed in fact, it probably wouldn't have if I had stayed in such a oppressive environment in which everybody was closeted. And, and so that was the environment of 50, 60, 70 years ago. I do think that the encounter of um, human beings is pivotal. And so this one reason why uh, one of the things that LGBT people say to one another is we must continue to, to tell our stories but, but I actually think sometimes the most compelling voices are LGBT Christians themselves. People like Matthew Vines and Justin Lee and Jennifer Knapp and um, a lot of other people here and around the world who tell their stories and then relate scripture to their stories in a way that has an existential depth and 
kind of personal feeling, personal integrity that um, that an ally like me can only marvel at. So I would say it's the stories from and the accounts offered by LGBT Christians themselves. It's not just about the substance of the message itself, right? The substance of your position. You have to have the right messenger. And the people who are the most effective messengers for this message of LGBT inclusion, of course, are people from that community. You have to have exposure of people who disagree with you to the actual people in question who are being affected by the church's position on this. And I'm not going into whether I think this is the right position or whether it's the wrong position. I'm just talking about how people are convinced to change their minds. And obviously, personal relationships with the people who are affected by this, with the people who say that they are hurt by the traditional uh, Christian ethic and enforcement of that, is extremely important and I would say critical to people changing their mind on this subject. I don't know if any if any Christian who is well-versed in the Bible and who has adhered to the traditional Christian sexual ethic, which is man and woman in covenant monogamous marriage, I don't know if anybody in that position changes their mind until they actually hear from from people in the LGBT community personally and have more extensive exposure to what they think and what their feelings are. I don't think, I don't know if anybody changes their mind without that. I really think it's that critical. And, and if you go listen to the interview, I think you'll hear David Gushy essentially say the same thing with the way he explained how he changed his mind. But I don't think it's just personal connections that does it. You have to have this other element. And in this podcast, we get into a discussion about truth. If the Bible itself isn't the authority and we can't actually determine what it is actually saying to us and how it should be applied, then then what is the standard? Like, how do you find out what's true? Like, how do you know that you're right? You don't know, but it is the responsibility of every Christian and especially of every Christian leader to do the best that they can to read scripture in such a way as to enable us to be faithful followers of Jesus. The Genesis to Jesus double play of, you know, the only sex that Jesus seemed to recognize was that between a man and a woman in marriage, and that's also what's in Genesis. That's still the hardest argument to overcome. And it does, it does require, you know, the kind of moves that I made and still, I mean, I can see why a lot of people can't, can't get there. He goes on to say that he knows that his position is knocking down essentially scripture and tradition and saying you can't just rely on these things to decide what your opinion is. You need to expand and broaden your horizons and take in 
to account these other things, which should also be authoritative in considering. And, you know, this is my interpretation of what Dr. Gushy has said, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that it's accurate as authoritative in how you are making, um, how you are formulating how the church should approach this issue on inclusion of um, LGBT people in marriage and in other aspects of church life. Like I said, I don't think that anybody who adheres to sola scriptura, that scripture is the final authority that decides what we believe on this, and that basically the whole Bible is authoritative and should be understood correctly, of course, in context, in its cultural context, of course, but that the whole Bible is authoritative on any given issue that affects Christians in our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. You have to leave that behind if you are going to accept this position. They are not, I don't believe that they are they are mutually exclusive. Sola scriptura and LGBT inclusiveness which is why you don't see very conservative denominations like Reformed Baptist denominations adopting uh, open, and affirming, open and affirming policies, basically, in their church. You only see this in more liberal denominations who don't have a very high view of scripture. And I thought that that was really interesting that he said the the quote-unquote Genesis to Jesus idea that this is how God designed things to work, that there is a sexual binary, and that that must be the basis for God's law on marriage between one way, one man and one woman, that that is the, the hardest thing to get over, and he sees how people can't get there. Well, if you have a very high view of Scripture, and Scripture is your final authority, of course you can't get there. And that may be, you know, teetering on a line of taking a position here. You might be thinking, what does Georgie think about this issue? Which, if you've read some of my other stuff, you know what I think about this issue. But you, you, can't, you can't get there if you have a really high view of Scripture and a more literalistic um, view of Scripture. I'm not saying, like, hyper-literal, but... You, you take it sort of at face value that it means what it means and it's not purely allegorical or um, just bits of, of mythic literature and things like that. So those are my thoughts on episode 32 with David Gushy and I highly encourage you to go listen to it because it is it was just fascinating to hear the process of how he changed his mind and i think there is so much regardless of what side of the issue you come down on there is so much that you can glean from that so that's episode 32 take some time maybe saturday morning when you're flipping pancakes or you want to listen to something later at night or whatever i i really think it's a it's definitely worth your time My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Mine too. Y'all about to get woke. 
Yes, it is time for the Woke of the Week. As I said at the very beginning of this podcast, I have a take on the fact that um, Kelly Clarkson and John Legend are reimagining the Christmas song, Baby It's Cold Outside. Reimagining it without the controversial lyrics. So this is from the UK Independent the voice coach apparently shared them shared with them a preview of the updated song co-written with insecure star Natasha Rowell with Vanity Fair sorry they shared it uh, the voice coach shared it with Vanity Fair for the magazine's November cover story and so the, just listen listen this is what it says what will my friends think sings Clarkson i think they should rejoice legend responds if I have one more drink, it's your body, your choice. Mmm, catchy. So catchy. So this song is, of course, a classic. And it's been around... It's been around for like three quarters of a century. It is a staple in the holiday lineup. It's a classic. It's catchy. It's, you know, got that flirty overtone to it. That said... Um, I don't, I don't like it. I know, I know. I don't, I don't like it. I don't like Baby It's Cold Outside. I do think it's a little bit creepy. I do think that the male in the song is pushy, pushing over a line. And if you look at the lyrics, it's pretty clear that this is like a fairly young woman. She's still living in her father's house. And she's worried about what her dad's going to think, what her brother's going to think, what her aunt's going to think, and that she's got to get home to her father's house. And he's like, no, you should definitely stay. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's like, it's a little bit creepy. I just, it is, okay? I find the lyrics to be problematic. Like, he says, what's in this drink? Or, sorry, she says, what's in this drink? What's What's in this drink? Why would you need to ask that? That's a little sketchy, okay? And then she says, I ought to say no, 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 sir. Mind if I move in closer, blah, blah, blah. At least I'm going to say that I tried. Okay, so yeah, you know, she seems like the consent is like kind of sort of there. And I've honestly, I've never understood how self-described Christians so vehemently defend this song. Like it's the long-lost final version of, like, John's Book of Revelation or something like that. Like, it's not that wholesome of a song. Is it any less wholesome than most of the stuff you hear on secular radio? No. Um, probably not. Like, there are a lot of classics. See, I'm not being a hypocrite here. Let me point this out. There are a lot of classics, like, from the 70s, that feature men lusting after slash preying on minors. Like the Beatles, she was just 17, if you know what I mean. Come on. Come on. Okay, I've registered my complaint. All that said, I think remaking this song is just stupid. This is stupid. Let it be. Just let it be. Just leave it alone. Let it be an artifact of a bygone era. Let it 
fall by the wayside. And for Pete's sake, just like write some new Christmas music that's actually good, which we haven't had in a really long time. Like not since last Christmas, right? Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. Oh, I said I was never going to sing on this podcast. And I just broke that. Sorry. But write some Christmas music that's actually good. And then we can fill the lineup with that. And then we don't even have to think about Baby It's Cold Outside. But it's been so long since we've had good Christmas music that we're still relying from things from 75 years ago. I think that's a little bit ridiculous, okay? And it is lazy and obnoxious to rewrite a classic to make a political point. Just like it is obnoxious and lazy just to say, tear down the statues, tear down Jefferson Davis, tear down this this statue, you know, monument from the slavery era over there and over here, and we'll just get rid of it and we'll just erase it and build something else in its place. I mean, I am saying essentially you should build something else in the place of the songs and don't like it, but it's lazy to just try to rewrite a classic like you're trying to rewrite history. It's revisionist. It's it's inauthentic fundamentally. It's not clever. It's not imaginative. And if you're going to rewrite something, make it satire, okay? Just turn it over to Weird Al Yankovic. I don't know if Weird Al has done a parody on Baby It's Cold Outside. Maybe he already has. I would be interested in hearing that reimagining. I'm not interested at all in what John Legend and Kelly Clarkson are going to sing in Baby It's Cold Outside. I don't care if it's super woke. I don't care if they're promoting consent or not. It's obnoxious. Lazy, obnoxious, revisionist. End of story. Now we get to talk about messages on the flip phone. I mean, if I already broke my world about singing on the podcast, you know, I can like, I can sing a catchy jingle, right? Maybe not. I'm just embarrassing myself. Let's move on (laughs) to today's message from the flip phone. Okay. This text reads, I just finished listening to your podcast interview with Dr. Gushy. I'm not sure he made a convincing pro-LGBTQ biblical argument. However, I believe that what he had to say about how to handle read love, a family member that has come out, is vital. We don't have to agree that what our family member is choosing is right, but pushing away and disowning them is not loving and it is not biblical and perhaps the biggest sin of all. Yes, in essence, coming out, coming out throws families into chaos and heartbreak. And Christian families, I dare say, have not been very well equipped to handle this. I wonder, where are the resources on how to handle such things when the number of LGBT people has risen so drastically in recent years and within the Christian community where are the courses? Where are the textbooks? You know, like we have, we have courses and textbooks for everything. We have it for financial literacy, like Financial Peace University, for instance. Where are the courses on how to handle when a relative or a close family member comes out? 
where is the biblical instruction specifically on how to handle that scenario? You can't just say, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Like, you can't, that's not enough. There needs to be some sort of guidance in how to handle this because it can shatter families. It can absolutely devastate them. And I'm not pinning that all on the person coming out, okay? It's how everyone reacts. And in the end, the only thing you can control are your own actions and reactions. And you have to leave the rest to God. But if you know of any resources or courses or lectures or Bible studies in that specific genre of how Christian families can love not just their LGBT neighbor, but love people within their family that have come out and how to address all of that in a biblical way, I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can tweet at me and send me, um, you can, you can tweet stuff at me if you want, if you're more comfortable with that, with the flip phone, but honestly, you can text or you can leave a voicemail. I love hearing from you either way at 323-999-1802. We are going to talk about one more thing in the debunking conventional wisdom segment, and that is the idea that paid leave, required mandatory paid leave, is good for mothers. So you have heard the argument many times that the U.S. is the only developed country that doesn't mandate paid leave or paid time off to women after they give birth. In Finland, women get 161 weeks of paid leave. In Germany, they get 58 weeks. In the U.K., they get 39 weeks. In Ireland, they get 26 weeks. And we're the quote-unquote only developed country that doesn't, on a national level, mandate paid um, maternity or paternity leave. Well, there's this brand new study that's coming out uh, that came out of the University of Michigan, which I wrote about over this past week, about California's paid leave policy, which they instituted in 2004. They looked at 15 years of data for individual women in California, not just their wage earnings, but employment and employer transitions and so they looked at this IRS administrative tax data for women who gave birth in the third quarter of 2004, which is right after the policy was enacted. So they have like a prime sample to study how this policy affected women in the long term. We're talking about like 15, 14, 15 years of data here. And here's what they found. Employment for mothers overall was up just shy of 1% in the long term. That's 6 to 11 years. Employment for first-time mothers was down 4.1% in the long term. Wages actually decreased by a statistically significant 5.1% per year in the short run and 7.9% in the long run. 7.9% decrease in wages. And they also found that um, women who take paid time off via this policy, were no more likely to remain attached to their employer, which is another popular talking point for paid leave, that people are less likely to um, quit their job since they have job security and they'll come back to their employer and all of that human capital and all that knowledge that's built up with this person working in this position won't be lost. Well, that turned out not to be the case. Among other important things is... Uh, 
the fact that they found unmarried mothers taking paid leave are 8% less likely to be working in the long term. 8%. And they noted that the impact for unmarried mothers was twice as large than for married mothers. But of course, it's not all downside. Paid family leave increases time spent breastfeeding and time spent with children even children after time spent with them after you return to work. There's bonding time, like all of that is very, very important and paid leave can help with that. However, looking more at the big picture, it also lowered the fertility rate for working mothers over the next decade, down 2% for all mothers and 5% for new mothers. And this is something that is not talked about very often, Because the decision to have children is a very personal decision, and not everybody makes that choice. But if you look at the countries that have massive, like robust paid leave policies, um, their fertility rate is also below replacement rate. Like their populations are shrinking, which is very alarming, right? Because they have massive welfare states. And to maintain a welfare state, you need a young working population that is paying into the system and not taking very much out of the system. And how do you have that young working population if you're not having enough new people being born? That's, I know that it's kind of controversial to say, oh, uh, that's kind of icky to say, legislators, why why would, you can't take fertility into account because that's such a personal decision when you're deciding what your policies should be. But actually, I think you should because the the entire system is at risk of collapsing in the long term if you stay below replacement rate. And the U.S. is at like 1.88 when we need to be at one point. It's like, or sorry, 2.1, I think, to to effectively at least stay relatively stable in our population and our, and our population of young working people. So it is not all sunshine and rainbows when it comes to paid maternity leave. This is a very good study, very robust findings that you can't really pin um, those results on some other factor. It seems to be due to the institution of this policy. And if you want to look at the reasons, I think, behind why wages drop, it's not just that women are spending time out of the workforce. Like six weeks is not a long time. That's not really going to to kill your your capital or um, that's, that's not like a, a resume killer, okay? Um, it's six weeks. I think it has to do with the fact that employers are being asked to pay for this. This is not a government program. Employers are being asked to pay for this. And in order to pay for an expensive policy like this, you have to make that up somewhere else. And they make it up with lower wages. And then I think also something that's probably contributing to the fact that mothers are less likely to be employed is not just mothers choosing to stay home with their kids, which is great. But it's also harder to be employed when employers in the back of their mind are always thinking this is really, really expensive to do six weeks of paid leave. 
And by the way, 12 months of job protection, like you can abandon a job for three months and still have a right to come back to it in California. That's important to consider too. That's in their back of their minds when they're interviewing people who are women who are of childbearing age, even men, young fathers who are of childbearing age. This is not good for fathers, okay? Yes, it's, it's, it's good that you can take leave and be with your kid and, and help your, your wife or your, your partner who has this brand new baby. Like, that's all great. Love paternity leave. Loved having um, Cody with me for this for for both kids to be able to be with me for a while and not be working but it also has a long-term effect and that long-term effect is it's it's harder to get hired when you're thinking about um starting a family and you're in that age group because you've got somebody else over here who's older they're looking to get into the workforce they're past childbearing age you know maybe their kids are out of the house you know, that's a safer bet. So all of these things have unintended consequences. And we really need to take into account how it's affecting both fathers and mothers in the long term. So that is what I have to say on that. I had a lot more in my notes, but we can cover that some other time. that is all I have for you today. I hope you found it helpful and enjoyable. Remember, of course, that you can call or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802. You can flip out on something I said or something a guest said. Um, Try to flip my position or tell me about your own 180 slash flip flop. That's 323-999-1802. Don't be shy. And of course, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast. And please, if you like the podcast, just right after we're done here, just go to Apple Podcasts and give it a little review. Just rate it, couple lines, what you think about the podcast. Even if you hate it, I would love to hear from you. Just give it a review. That really helps this this podcast out in terms of um, growing our community and being able to have more fun essentially so you can follow me of course at georgie underscore borman where you can talk to me about my opinions on maybe it's cold outside and other christmas classics until next time seek the truth share your values and listen with your heart and your mind god bless what I need, who I've got in the middle of a struggle, though let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got in the middle Executive of producer of Kevin McCullough, music by Ruthie Crack. I am what I need, who I've got in the middle of a struggle, though let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.